You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Her Majesty's government discloses the existence of a national cyber force. Hanoi tells Facebook to crack down on posts critical of Vietnam's government. Chinese cyber espionage campaign targets Japanese companies. Egregor ransomware prints its extortion notes in hard copy. SEO poisoning with bad reviews. Mike Benjamin from Lumen on credential stuffing and password spraying. Our guest is Mark Foreman from SAIC with a look at government agencies' COVID-19 response. And CISA may have a permanent director inbound. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, November 20th, 2020. Prime Minister Johnson has informed Britain's parliament of the existence of the National Cyber Force, a new joint command that's been in operation since April. The National Cyber Force contains elements from MI6 and GCHQ and from serving members of the military and personnel from the Defense Science and Technology Laboratory. The force's planned end strength is placed at some 3,000, a goal it is expected to reach by 2030. Its charter, according to the BBC, includes both disruption of hostile communications networks and the conduct of information operations. The National Cyber Force is what in the U.S. would be called a combat support organization. Its mission includes tactical support of kinetic military operations. It might, for example, be called upon to protect British combat aircraft by disrupting enemy air defense command and control so it would play a tactical role analogous to that filled by traditional electronic warfare operations. ZDNet points out that the Secret Intelligence Service, also known as MI6, which we suppose we must point out is the home of spy fiction's 007, will contribute its expertise in recruiting and running agents alongside its unique ability to deliver clandestine operational technology. Thus, the National Cyber Force seems likely to have some multi-domain capabilities. But the National Cyber Force also has an everyday mission. It may be called upon to interfere with hostile systems being used to conduct or prepare cyber attacks against the United Kingdom. And it may also be called upon to conduct influence and counter-influence operations against adversaries. It will operate separately from the longer-established and better-known National Cybersecurity Center. A combination of increased regulation and tougher industry content moderation is increasingly seen by many as the right direction for the future of online platforms in general and social media in particular. Hanoi might be providing a picture of how that future may look once it's realized. According to Reuters, Vietnam is threatening to block Facebook if the social network doesn't knuckle under to Hanoi's demands for censorship of local political content. A senior Facebook official told Reuters, quote, We made an agreement in April. Facebook has upheld our end of the agreement, and we expect the government of Vietnam to do the same. They have come back to us and sought to get us to increase the volume of content that we're restricting in Vietnam. We've told them no. That request came with some threats about what might happen if we didn't, end quote. 
The government in Hanoi responded to a Reuters follow-up with the simple statement that social networks should not expect to be able to continue, quote, spreading information that violates traditional Vietnamese customs and infringes upon state interests, end quote, which is one way of looking at it. Many reports at week's end elaborate on Symantec's account of the way in which the Chinese threat group Cicada, also known as APT-10, Cloudhopper, or Stone Panda, is leveraging the zero-logon vulnerability and using DLL side-loading attacks to collect intelligence on Japanese targets. Those targets have been drawn from multiple sectors, including managed service providers, engineering, and pharmaceutical firms. The effects are international since they extend to overseas subsidiaries of the affected Japanese companies. Egregor ransomware, the strain that's been heralded as most likely to take the place of the, for now, retired maze, has adopted a particularly irritating method of delivering its ransom notes. It spits them out in hard copy from compromised printers. The security company Tripwire's State of Security blog has a report, and they include a link to a video of a representative print run. It amounts to a self-proving method of demonstrating compromise— It's one thing to tell someone that you totally pwn them. It's a lot more convincing if you can cause that notification to be printed on the victim's office inkjet. When the hoods put it that way, it seems a lot less likely to be easily ignorable scareware, doesn't it? A new report from the cybersecurity and cloud delivery firm Akamai describes a relatively unfamiliar form of extortion with a low barrier for entry. Criminals are poisoning companies' search engine optimization results and demanding a payoff in exchange for stopping the virtual bad-mouthing. The SEO poisoning typically takes the form of injecting bad reviews and negative comments into various online fora and then linking those comments back to search results. This sort of extortion has surfaced periodically over the last few years. It has, as Akamai points out, a fairly low barrier to entry. And finally, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Executive Director, Brandon Wales, has been leading the agency on an interim basis since the dismissal of former Director Christopher Krebs earlier this week. But a permanent successor may be coming. CyberScoop reports that Sean Planky, currently a senior official at the Department of Energy, is in line for the top job at CISA. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. 
The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. My guest today is Mark Foreman, Vice President for Digital Government Strategy at SAIC. He joins us with results from their research of government agencies' COVID-19 response when it comes to cybersecurity. Basically, I think for so many of us, the same thing for the federal employees, you were told to, to go home and uh, let's try out working virtually. And nobody ever expected almost overnight that people would have to work remote. So the situation for some employees they had been teleworking, they were set up, but their agencies were never set up with the, the ability to handle the scale. So that was one of the issues that, and continues to be an issue uh, as we go forward in uh, some of the agencies managing, the, especially the security elements, as well as the uh, access to core mission apps at scale and with the security. A lot of people had to use uh, bring wild own device BYOD, and uh, and of course what that meant is getting access to things like Outlook Web Access, and um, not really access to your core mission applications. So that then presented problems, and of course associated with that is downloading documents onto the home PC, which violates a number of other security concerns. So those, those were the kind of initial issues that had to be triaged in the early days of the pandemic. Well, take us through some of the challenges that you all uh, have uh, listed here in your report. Well, the the top five really uh, get into what does the future uh, look like as we're managing through today. The first two relate to keeping people safe in their work environment. Some agencies, you have to come in to do the work. You know, in defense agencies, for example, and some of the, the public health laboratory examples. Um, in addition, some people want to return to work. Now, I think there's been uh, reports from the General Services Administration, and we clearly saw that come out of the survey, that return to work doesn't mean that you're stopping working at home. What it means is the work environment shifts, and you rely on that more for collaboration. So how do you get the work environment safe so people don't feel that they're infected when they come in, especially when they want to come in to have uh, meetings, maybe cross-agency meetings? And uh, and that is, uh, I think, a key part of what we've seen as well in uh, some of the general employee surveys that have been uh, made public in in our area. Um, The workforce and the decision makers want to make sure the workplace is safe. After that, the maximum capabilities for telework and creating that systems environment that makes it secure from cyber attacks has evolved. Um, Social engineering has evolved with the pandemic and the executives and decision makers we surveyed 
identified that as going hand in hand with giving people access to their core systems, a lot of which are, are on site. And then finally, dealing with fraud, waste, and abuse and making sure that operations are effective and efficient, that they're uh, managing the taxpayers' funds well. And I think what this relates to are a couple of things. Of course, uh, a lot of the controls that relate to uh, fraud, let's take it as an example. I think people are now coming to uh, identify that some of that is a result of information, identity information being sold on the dark web. And, uh, and so there, there are a lot of requests for uh, insight on how do we take these new, uh, this new environment, new fraud controls, and put them in place. And, uh, and of course, we've seen that at the state government level as well. But that's, that's what's behind this, uh, this question and the response that we got on how do you make fraud, waste, and abuse under control in this new environment. Um, going forward into the future, I think the other element that we saw from some of the anecdotes is people have to formulate new ways of working together, new business processes. Uh, in the past, again, some of the anecdotes, uh, a, a manager could call down the hall to their staff and quickly get everybody together. In the online environment, it just doesn't work that way. Mm. So uh, that was one of the challenges that relates to making sure the organizations can work effectively together. Yeah, I can't help wondering if if we're in for, or I guess to what degree we're in for a, a real culture shift here when it comes to how people think about work, you know, that both the worker side and the management side, that going through this together has sort of demonstrated that people can work effectively and efficiently from home uh, and they don't necessarily need to have that manager looking over their shoulder all day. Well, that's, that's absolutely right. And, and of course, the thing that goes hand in hand in our survey is uh, that 80% uh, felt that they found it extremely or somewhat challenging preventing the transmission of uh, COVID-19 in their offices. Hmm. And so, um, so the, the reality is they, they didn't feel they can call people back into work and go back to normal. They'd much rather... And I think they've accepted that the future of work is, is a remote environment and adjusting for that is, is what they're now doing in this, what I would call the recovery phase of um, the pandemic response. Our thanks to Mark Foreman from SAIC for joining us. Don't forget that over on CyberWire Pro, we have a podcast called Interview Selects, where you can find extended versions of this and many other interviews. You can learn more about that on our website, thecyberwire.com. It's CyberWire Pro. Check it out. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. 
That's vanta.com slash cyber. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Mike Benjamin. He's the head of Black Lotus Labs, which is part of Lumen Technologies. Uh, Mike, it's always great to have you back. Um, I, I wanted to touch today on uh, something, that, one of the basics, which is credential stuffing and password spraying. Kind of get a, a review and insights from you, what we're dealing with here. What can you share with us today? Yeah, so it's helpful to start with a bit of a definition. And so at its most simple level, credential stuffing is taking passwords from previous leaks, usernames and passwords, whether that be somebody's Gmail address with a password they used on one site, trying to reuse it on another site, could be business logins, trying to reuse it in other places, but basically credential reuse and shove it at a massive volume down some other service to see how many times the credentials were reused. So that's stuffing the credentials down into that service. Password spraying is still a high volume attempt to log in, but it's typically using simple passwords. So password one, two, three, what is it? It's, you know, fall 2020, whatever those passwords are that are particularly common and just trying right. them on every account that they can get their hands on. And now we can try and break into the accounts that way. So that's credential stuffing and that's password spraying. And so at a simple level, um, that, that's about what they are. Now they've evolved in recent years where now they're done through large proxy botnets. And so what might sound relatively easy to stop one IP address sending a thousand logins should be pretty easy to code agents that now it might be three attempts from one IP address, and then they rotate to the next proxy server. And so the actors have become much more advanced in their attempts in order to evade detection. They've even gone to the point where they're doing things around geolocality. So if you are a US-based business, they may only use US proxies, or I live in Colorado, they might only use Colorado-based proxies. So they've gotten more sophisticated in the attack methodologies in order to hide themselves inside the noise of general logins users. And is this the kind of thing that, that can get around? Um, you, you hear people talking about things like rate limiting that, that can help with these sorts of things. It, would the, the botnets allow them to, to circumvent that? Absolutely. And so the two types of rate limiting. The most simple goes back to what I just said, and they'll rate limit a single IP address and only allow it to log in every few seconds because human beings will take that long to type it. Uh, in other cases, let the entire site have a, a relatively relatively reasonable burst on their normal uh, throughput and then stop anything that goes above that because it must be attacked. Either way, the actors in many cases are not just trying to break into one service. They may be targeting 10 services. So they're fine waiting a few seconds between these login because they'll just negatively go from service to service to service. So rate limiting is really, for the more advanced folks, not going to slow them down uh, in any real way. What sort of scale are we dealing with here? How big are some of these actors? Yeah, so the, on the sophisticated side, we've seen them build botnets of over 100,000 IP addresses that they can come from. And so if you can imagine trying to discern in your logs as a, a service, where do I see someone attacking us who's going slow, rotating IP addresses, associating a login to each IP address, and doing it from the place where general users are logging in, it, it in some cases can be nearly impossible to find the actor in that noise. And so those are the folks that are hard to get your hands on and stop. Now, on the low end of the sophistication, they'll take a password dump, 
buy a VPS with Bitcoin and attack from one place, those ones are definitely easy to stop. Hmm. So what's the big picture impact here? I mean, why should folks care about this sort of thing? Well, the, the most simple is that we use our online identities or businesses use those credentials to do something, whether it be shop, sometimes store information about themselves. And those, those things can be of value in underground markets. So the, the louder, less sophisticated actor groups, they're going in and they're pulling out information about just raw accounts and selling them. So I got a thousand accounts, they'll sell for five bucks and they're trying to make money off of it. So leaking your PII, getting access to something somebody shouldn't be in on the low sophistication side, that's concerning, but not something we should run around with our hair on fire about. The other side, though, is we see nation state attackers doing where they want to target a company. Well, guess what? They'll go to every password dump they've ever found. They'll go grab everything that contains the domain of the company they're targeting, and they'll go try to break in with that. It's frightening how often they are successful. And so things like two-factor authentication in place at every perimeter access for a business, making sure that the security groups of consumer-oriented services are paying attention to credential dumps and trying them against their own service before the actors can even get to it. Those kinds of things are really helpful. Uh, and I, you know, sort of a funny story one of my coworkers told me the other day. He said, you know, we're dealing with users that will set passwords forever. This is an inevitability. And so it's up to us to either force them into multi-factor authentication mechanisms uh, or, or even on the simple side, just make sure that the password on input is of a high enough sophistication and not one of those default credentials. Uh, but the, the way he drove it home to me, he said, we all saw the stories about the seeds that were being shipped from China to people's homes. Mm, kind of interesting mm -hmm. news story a few weeks ago. And, you know, I, th I thought with the story, he was going to say, you know, some people planted them, so people are going to make silly mistakes. No, it, his story in the news article he posted to me, some people ate them. And so we're dealing with people that at some level oh <laughs> are going to eat random things that come in the mail. And so they're going to make mistakes, whether, even if they're not, you know, with a poor intention. It's right. going to happen. And so it's up to us to think about how do we build the technology in a way that lets that kind of user in and lets that kind of user not cause themselves a problem. And so that's <laughs> right. the, the burden we all bear in the security industry. <laughs> I think an old colleague of mine used to say, nothing is foolproof to a talented fool. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> all right. Well, Mike Benjamin, thanks for joining us. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Think different. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. Be sure to check out this weekend's Research Saturday episode. I'm joined by Matt Chiodi from Palo Alto Network's Unit 42 on their Cloud Threat Report, We'll be talking about how cloud misconfigurations and crypto jacking continue to plague thousands of organizations. That's Research Saturday. Hope you'll join us. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. 
Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Rue Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Balecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week. 